We're continuing to make our way through Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Last week, we explored how Paul stood against the Judaizers that were causing issues within the church, arguing that the law, or sorry, they were causing issues in the church by arguing that the law was uh, a means by which they were able to be a part of the church. The Judaizers were arguing that folks had to uh, in, uh, incur circumcision, they had to follow the law of Moses to, to be saved and to be part of the church. And Paul was arguing that the law was never meant to be that. It was never meant to be a means of salvation. It was meant to help people to see their sin and to navigate their relationship with God and the world around them. It was a way to help them love God and to love their neighbor and to the fulfillment of the promise that was made to Abraham. And that brings us to our passage this morning. So I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. Now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. For you are all children of God through faith, in Christ Jesus, and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. This is God's word to us this morning. As he has done so, uh, as we have looked over the last, uh, last couple of weeks, Paul continues to discuss the purpose of the law and uses an analogy to help us understand the purpose of the law prior to the arrival of Jesus' Messiah on the scene. He describes it as a guardian that was meant to keep us safe until the way of faith was revealed. Now, let's think about the Ten Commandments for a second. When you look at the first four commandments, they're meant to govern or protect our relationship with God. In short, to show us how to relate to and to be in relationship with God. In essence, to show his people how to express their love for him. And when we look at the last six commandments, they're meant to govern or protect our relationship to other human beings. Again, in short, they're meant to show us how to relate to and to be in relationship to other people. In essence, to show people how to express their love for one another. 
And so the Ten Commandments meant to show us how to be in relationship with God and how to be in relationship with each other, to guard, to care for that relationship on our end with God, and how to look out, take care of, and live with other people. The law was meant to protect relationships, to help us navigate them, and to guard them. God understood that we needed something to help us stay on track, to govern those relationships, to care for them, to hold them in high esteem, because he knows of our capacity for sin and destructive behavior as human, as human beings. He knows of our ability, our capacity to hurt one another. And so he places the law before us to help us guard those relationships. There needed to be a way to manage that until Jesus arrived. And so he gives the law to Moses so that the Israelites, who were a people, set apart for his purposes. And part of that purpose was to live within the confines of the law so that they point the rest of the nations that were living around them back to God. And Paul is clear that we no longer need the law to operate in that capacity any longer because now we have Jesus Christ. Now, if you've ever been bowling, you may have seen the bowling alleys that have uh, rails that they put into the gutters for kids to bowl. And as the ball goes down the alley, it sort of can bounce back and forth, but never goes into the gutter. It's a teaching tool. Um, although I would admit if I go bowling now, there's probably a really good chance that I could use those rails. Um, but they're not meant for me. Uh, they're particularly meant for kids uh, to teach them, to help them, to be a guard, um, to help them stay out of the gutter without feeling that repeated frustration of a gutter ball after gutter ball after gutter ball, which, again, if I were to go bowling today, would probably feel that same frustration. Or instead of thinking about it like those rails in the gutter, Think about the law as something like trading wheels on a bike. When you first learn to ride a bike, you have trading wheels that sort of help you from falling over. I don't know if you've ever fallen over on a bike, but it can be pretty painful. And so we created trading wheels to help us navigate learning how to ride a bike. Help, uh, trading wheels help you keep your balance until you're ready to go on your own. Just like the rails in a bowling lane or training wheels on a bike, the law served as a guardian that helped serve to keep us out of the gutter or upright on our bike until the time was right for humanity to move on to a deeper experience when it became available. And now that it had become available in the form of Jesus as Messiah, we don't need the rails. We don't need 
the training wheels. We don't need the law to guard us any longer. We have Jesus. And then things get really interesting as Paul continues on in this letter. He stops talking about the purpose of the law, which honestly, I'm super thankful for because it keeps getting more and more difficult to talk about the law over and over again every week. It's hard to keep that fresh. So I'm thankful that he steps away from that. And he starts talking about the identity that's given to those who believe in Jesus. And the very first thing he communicates to his readers is about identity. Identity that rests in Jesus Christ for anyone who believes in him. And that identity is as child of God. Paul indicates to us that when we make the choice to believe in Jesus Christ, we become part of the family of God and become the children of God. And that means a couple of different things for us. Pastorally, I will say, the things that I'm about to say might be a little hard for us to swallow. I know as I was preparing and praying and reading, they were hard for me to swallow. And so sometimes there are things pastorally that we don't always want to say, but I'm going to say them anyway and trust that God will be at It means that God is a parent to us, a parent's role in life, regardless of whether or not they fulfill that role or responsibility of parenthood, is to care for, provide for, and help children become who they were created to be. A parent is committed to the development of the maturity of their children even when it is difficult, even when discipline is involved, even when it is challenging. It is our job to make sure that our children develop into mature human beings. When we are a child of God, we trust that God is that faithful parent who loves us as his children, who is seeking our good, even when it's hard, even when it's challenging, especially when we don't want to hear it, when we're being stubborn, when we want things to be our way, when we're throwing the temper tantrums, when we are unfaithful as children, God remains faithful and steadfast in his purposes as our parent to love us and to see us through to maturity. This is where it gets a little hard. Being children of God means that we have a whole lot of siblings, about a billion of them if we pay attention to the numbers of uh, Christians who are currently living around the world. It's a lot of siblings. 
It means that every person who believes in Jesus Christ, who claims Christ, is our brother or our sister. I know that can be really challenging to wrap our head around, but every person who believes in Jesus Christ is your sibling, is my sibling. That means all of the people in this congregation, in our community, in our country, and all around the world are our brothers and sisters. They are our family. And guess what? That includes the people that you might disagree with. The people that you might not like a whole lot. And the people who might not like you very much either. That means who, people who have a different skin color or may have a different nationality than you. That means the Democrat or Republican that you just don't understand. That means the Christian that might choose to vote differently than you do. The Christian that might have a different theological persuasion or go to a different church and that really just annoys you on an intentional, personal level. Those folks, each and every one, are your brothers and sisters in Christ. They are part of your family. And that means that we treat them like family. That means love, respect, gentleness, and kindness at all times between us, even when, and especially when, we don't like each other a whole lot. We don't always have to like each other, which happens frequently with siblings. Many siblings struggle to get along for a variety of different reasons. But we must love each other and treat one another as the child of God that each of us is. Because as the group Sister Sledge put it back in 1979, we are family. We don't always get to choose our family, but that does not neglect our responsibility to love each and every one of them as best we can without excuse. There may be fights, there may be kicking and screaming, maybe even biting if they're fights like my sister and I had when we were kids. But at the end of the day, we make up, we hug, we forgive and we move forward together with the knowledge that nobody has your back quite like your brother or sister. When we treat each other like the siblings that we are, then Jesus' reminder that we will be known as his disciples by our love for one another in John 13, 35 comes into play. 
When we love one another as brothers and sisters, the world will see and will know that our faith in Jesus is true, that it is real, that it is countercultural, and that it is transformative. And then Paul goes on to remind us that we are united through Christ, or united in Christ through our baptism, meaning that nobody is above anyone when they are in Christ. The pastor is not above the congregation or the congregation above the pastor. The rich are not above the poor, whites not above blacks. There is no one political party that has a monopoly on Christianity. People like to create hierarchies for themselves so that they know where they stand and so that they feel comfortable in the pecking order. But what we learn here from Paul is that there is no hierarchy in the kingdom of God. Just brothers and sisters loving each other in the example that Jesus set before us. And Paul further reinforces this when he says that there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. Our primary identity does not reside, and again, this is where it gets tough, does not reside in our religious affiliation, our party affiliation, our social status, our gender, our race, we are not primarily defined by our jobs, our roles in society, or by what we produce or fail to produce. We are not exceptional or above anyone by virtue of the country that we were born into. When we are believers in Jesus, that is our primary identity. That is the thing that defines us and defines how we should live and relate to the world around us. Our affirmation, our value, our identity, they all flow from being a child of God. God who loves us, cares for us, wants the best for us. And when we believe in Jesus, because of that belief, belong to a different kingdom. We belong to a different kingdom with a different set of values and ethics from the rest of the world. If we are acting just like everybody else is, then we have gone astray. Our lives should look different. Our lives should look transformed. And when we dabble in gossip and pettiness or try to intentionally hurt others who have hurt us, we're acting just like the world and standing outside of what Jesus Christ has for us and has called us to be and do. And as we look at Paul's final words in this passage, we discover that anyone who believes in Jesus is the true child of Abraham. Or in other words, the promise to Abraham made all those many years ago finds its fulfillment in each and every person through history that believed in Jesus or will 
believe in Jesus. We, you and I, and our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world are the heirs of that promise. And it belongs to us, that promise, with all the rights and privileges and inheritance that comes with it. And next week, we're going to spend a good deal of time talking about what that inheritance is and what it means for us. But for now, I think it's probably enough to say for us who believe in Jesus Christ, we are the children of God. And the promise made to Abraham millennia ago belongs to us all, making equals of us all, making family of us all. Which brings me to our take-home point this week. The take-home point is that overarching theme of the sermon that we can take with us and consider throughout the week. Our take-home point, the thing that I want you to take away, no matter what this week, is this. Your identity primarily rests in Jesus Christ. I'll say that again. Your identity primarily rests in Jesus Christ. In our action point this week, a practical application for our take-home point is this. Think about other things that may define your identity and consider why you have let them define you rather than allowing Jesus to define you. Again, think about other things that may define you and consider why you have let them define you rather than allowing Jesus to define you. Perhaps you've allowed your work to define you. Maybe your role as a spouse or as a parent has been your primary identity. Maybe you've allowed yourself to be identified by the sin in your life, perhaps holding the title of thief or liar or gossip. Maybe you've derived your self-worth by how others perceive you or whether or not you've been able to produce something of value. When you are in Christ Jesus, none of those self-imposed titles matter as much as the title of child of God given to you through faith and belief in Jesus Christ. In his book, Abba's Child, The Cry of the Heart for Intimate Belonging, Brennan Manning says something I think is really profound. He says this, Define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is illusion. I have found that to be true in my life. Whenever I have tried to define myself as something other than as child of God, I have inevitably and eventually gone astray somewhere. The other categories or identities that we take on 
to quote the band Kansas, all those identities are dust in the wind. They will ultimately blow away like dust. We must define ourselves first and foremost as children of God, as loved by God, and as his child, because that is how God sees us when we are in Christ. He sees us as a child. He is our loving parent, wanting the very best for us. Then we extend that grace that God shows us to our brothers and sisters in Christ here in this congregation, in this community, and all around the world as children loved by God, accepted into his kingdom, and heirs of the promise made to Abraham. Remembering, as Paul shows us in verse 29, that you belong to Christ. You are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you admitting that Sometimes we don't act like children of God. We forget our status as your children, and we forget ourselves. So, Lord, we ask that you would help us to remember our role as your children. Your role is loving Father. Lord, we ask that you would help us to love and, and care for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, even when it is difficult. Help us to seek their good as you would seek their good. Help us to be a people when we have wronged our siblings, to be a people of repentance, to seek to be a people of reconciliation, to seek to live counterculturally to the world around us, and to be known as your disciples through the love that we have for one another. We pray this in and through the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. Amen.